0: The story of Joseph is one of the most well-loved stories in the Bible. Uh, A musical adaptation of it has been performed in over 80 countries and become one of the world's most beloved family musicals. It's a story that has it all. Jealousy, sibling rivalry, betrayal, a murder plot, lust, jail time, a dramatic rise to fame... Ending with a tearful reunion uh, with a family member who was presumed dead for many years. In fact, there's so much going on that it would be very easy to get caught up in all the drama of the different parts of the story and miss the main message. It would also be easy to zoom in on what are meant to be minor parts of the story and try and turn them into the main thing. For example, I'm sure that many sermons about favouritism and bad parenting have been preached based on the chapter in front of us. Much ink has also been spilled as to whether Joseph is right or wrong to bring a bad report uh, to his brothers and tell them... About his dreams. Now, it's not that those things aren't worth discussing, but I think that if that's the sort of thing we spend most of our time on here, we'll have missed the point. In fact, the author of a book about Joseph that I came across yesterday tells a a story that really reinforces this. The book is by an African American preacher who some of you will have heard of called Vodi Bockham. And about seven years before he wrote the book, he got a letter from a Jewish woman who had heard a sermon he had preached on an Old Testament passage. And she was so moved by it that she felt the need to write to him. And the gist of her letter was to say that she was pleasantly surprised by the sermon uh, because she never thought she could get so much out of a message preached by a Gentile And Bauckham says that as he read the letter, his eyes were filled with tears, but not tears of joy. Rather, he says there were tears of horror and shame. Because as he read her letter, all he could think of were Paul's words in Corinthians. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why hadn't his message been a stumbling block to this Jew? Was it because she was being saved? No, it was because he hadn't preached Christ. He says, I had preached a verse by verse expository message from an Old Testament passage, but I hadn't preached the gospel. And he came to see that what he had actually been preaching was Christless moralism. As he puts it, he'd been preaching sermons that wouldn't cut to the heart of one who had rejected Christ in favour of the law, but instead affirmed them in their error. And he's certainly not alone in that. How many Old Testament sermons and Sunday school lessons in Christian churches would be heartily affirmed by a Jewish audience because they don't exalt Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul, who only had uh, the Old Testament, said, we preach Christ crucified. Now, it's possible to take that too far uh, the other way, to so react against uh, that sort of uh, teaching that a preacher refuses to draw any moral lessons from the Old Testament. Uh, And so let me say clearly that it's not wrong to use Old Testament characters as examples whether good ones or, or bad ones. First 1 Corinthians ten six, uh, speaking of certain Old Testament events says now these things took place as examples for us. So we shouldn't be scared of looking to the Old Testament for uh, good examples to follow or bad ones to avoid. Uh, But the bigger danger for most of us is coming to the Old Testament in a way that's less than Christian. And so we're going to begin this evening by looking at this messed up family on the page in front of us. But far more than that, we want to lift our eyes to see what our redeeming God is doing in the midst of all this sin and dysfunction. So, two headings tonight. Firstly, we see a messed up family. A messed up family. The story of Joseph isn't actually about Joseph. That's something which becomes clearer at the end of the story. It's something that becomes even more clear in light of the New Testament. But even at the very beginning of this story, we're being reminded that the story of Joseph isn't actually mainly about Joseph. We see that in how the chapter begins, or or at least in verse 2 where it should begin. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Genesis comes with these built-in sections that existed thousands of years before we had such a thing as chapter or verse divisions. And this section begins, these are the generations of Jacob. And then the next word is Joseph. So yes, Joseph is going to be a key character in what follows But we're being told right here that this final section of the book of Genesis isn't going to be just about Joseph. Rather, it's going to be about the family of Jacob. And even more importantly, it's going to be about the the God who is working out salvation for the world through this one family. It's going to be by the promise of God that was made to Abraham and then Isaac... ...and is now being carried forward in the family of Jacob. And actually, as we'll go on to discover, in many ways, Joseph isn't even the most important of Jacob's sons. Because the Messiah is going to be descended not from Joseph, but from Judah. (coughs) In fact, if someone came to these closing chapters of Genesis determined to preach on the life of Joseph, chances are they would skip over chapter 38 uh, because Joseph isn't mentioned there at all, uh, where the focus is very much on Judah. Uh, Now with all that said, we will begin tonight looking at this dysfunctional family of which Joseph is part of, uh, but by God's grace will not end there. Uh, So Jacob's family The description of them in this chapter doesn't make pleasant reading. There is hatred, jealousy, there's favouritism. And the question that people are dying to ask is, does Joseph bring at least some of this on himself? One commentary entitles these first 11 verses as Joseph alienates his family. Uh, But I read those words uh, and I'm thinking, really? Even if Joseph is in the wrong here in some of the things that he does. Is that how we're going to sum up uh, the first half of this chapter? Uh, But, okay, it's a legitimate question. Is Joseph in the wrong here? Is he an arrogant teenager who needs to be humbled? Uh, Perhaps, but I don't think we're given enough information to say for certain Is Joseph wrong to tell his brothers his dreams? Maybe. But even if we could say for certain that he was, is that what we're going to make this chapter all about? These dreams are God himself speaking to Joseph. God himself speaking into human history. And are we not interested in what God has to say? Are we so keen to start drawing moral lessons from the story that we'll spend more time discussing whether Joseph was right or wrong to share this revelation from God than we'll spend on what the revelation from God actually was? When the early church fathers uh, discussed this passage, they were pretty unanimous that Joseph's dream was actually about Christ rather than himself. Maybe their interpretation was wrong. But to me that's a far more interesting question to ask uh, than whether Joseph should have kept his mouth shut or not. But before we get to the dreams, we have to deal with this bad report that Joseph brings about his brothers in verse 2. It's the same word used of the spies in the book of Numbers who bring a bad report about the promised land. When they should have brought a good report... The, word, the same word here is used in the book of Proverbs to describe slander, but it's also used in the book of Proverbs to describe someone who is justly known to be of ill repute. And so all that's to say that I don't think we can tell from the word itself whether Joseph was right or wrong to bring his bad report but the next thing, two things we're told about this family are more cut and dried. Verse 3 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his other sons. And that's wrong. What makes it particularly tragic is that this is a sin that admired marred Jacob's own childhood. His father preferred his brother Esau, while his mother preferred him. And that had just led to, to conflict and, and disaster. And so how tragic that now the next generation is repeating the sin of their parents. Even though those sins marred Jacob's own childhood, rather than by God's grace seeking to break this cycle of sin, he just repeats it. It's so easy to do, just... just uh, To take what what we've seen and do it, even even if it wasn't actually good for us in the first place. Although we're not told it explicitly here, Jacob's favouritism was no doubt, at least in part, because Joseph was born to his favourite wife, Rachel. Remember how when Jacob thought Esau was coming to attack them all, he put Rachel and and her children at the very back. And this is a favouritism that's the fruit of past sin. Uh, The sin of distorting the biblical picture of marriage between one man and one woman. Joseph's ten older brothers had been born to three different women. But what united them in verse 4 was a hatred for Joseph. Because they saw that their father loved him more than, than them. But jealousy and envy are still wrong, no matter how much they're provoked, because they come from the devil himself. And then in verse 8, his brothers hate him even more once he tells them his first dream. The dream is that Joseph and his brothers are binding sheaves in the field. And Joseph's sheath rises up and stands upright while their sheaves gather round it and bow down to it. And you don't need a a PhD in dream interpretation to work out what this is about. The brothers are in no doubt. They see it as a claim that one day he'll rule and reign over them. Then he has another dream. This time the dream needs no interpretation at all. Uh, or very little he sees the sun moon and 11 stars bowing down to him The, the sun and moon his father and mother the 11 stars his brothers this time he tells it to his father as well as his brothers the dream this time involves his father so he tells his father and initially at least Jacob rebukes him Saying, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? (coughs) Now, interestingly, Joseph's mother is actually dead at this point. Uh, Rachel has already died just after Benjamin has been born. And that's one of the reasons why the early church fathers applied this dream to Christ. uh, Because... Obviously, in heaven, Mary worships Jesus, uh, and so that was the application they made. But, but I think a, a simpler explanation is that this is just a, a reference to Leah, uh, Jacob's other wife, who, who would have become Joseph's stepmom when Rachel died. Uh, so uh, I think the, the reference to his mother is a reference to his stepmom, Leah, but, but it's an interesting question. As is the question of why two dreams. Why two dreams? Prophetic dreams that come in pairs are actually a theme of the Joseph story. Here he himself has two dreams. And then when he's in prison, there are two dreams on the same night. Uh, one uh, by the cupbearer and the other by the baker. And then the thing that leads to Joseph getting out of prison is that Pharaoh has two dreams so uh, three sets of two dreams. And we're actually told what the significance of, of this is. Uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. And the same is true here. However unlikely it seems that Joseph's brothers will bow down to him, the thing was fixed by God. And now, if we really must, we'll come back to the question of whether Jacob should have communicated his dream to the rest of his family. At first, we need to be clear what the dream is. This isn't the sort of dream that, that we might have today. Uh, this is a revelation from God as the opening words of the book of hebrews puts it long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets Uh, and one of those many ways was dreams but but the book of hebrews goes on but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son Uh, so we're not to look for god to communicate to us in dreams today but but he certainly did in old testament times before people had the finished bible and as someone who brings God's word uh, to uh, Pharaoh, to the cupbearer, to the baker, I think we can call Joseph a prophet, just as God calls Abraham a prophet back in chapter 20. Uh, so I think you could make a good case uh, that here that Joseph is simply a prophet bringing God's word to his brothers and to his father. And the reason his brothers get so angry is because they don't like what God's word has to say. Joseph is just the messenger. It is interesting that when Joseph tells his father the second dream, that Jacob initially rebukes him. But then in the next verse we're told that his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. It reminds you a bit of Luke chapter 2 when Mary... uh, And Joseph initially rebuked Jesus for going to the temple, but then he responds, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And we're told that his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now I wouldn't go to the stake to defend Joseph here, but I think that if someone reads the opening 11 verses and all they want to do is pile on Joseph Rather than marvel at God's promise and, and shudder at how angry it makes his brothers, then they're missing the point. Uh, from our perspective, Joseph needs to tell his brothers what the dream was so that we can hear it. Uh, and that's the most important thing, that we hear this dream. Uh, not at this point in the story, not whether Joseph was right or wrong uh, to, to tell. I don't think it really makes a difference. Uh, and I certainly don't think we should build too much on it. So firstly this evening we see here a messed up family, just as sin's ugly tentacles cause tension between Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Here are more brothers at enmity in the book of Genesis. But amazingly God is going to work through them. Not because they deserved it, but because this was the one family on earth whom he had chosen. Their sin in this chapter is is terrible. But even their sin, even what they would do to their own flesh and blood, that cannot derail God's plan. But God is going to be at work in this family in spite of their sin. And in fact, even through their sin. What they mean for evil, God will work out for good. Uh, Because that's what a a great God that we have. A God who can use even our sin to further his purposes. So firstly, a messed up family, but not a family that's beyond God's grace. Uh, And that gives us all hope. Uh, A messed up family, but not one that's beyond God's grace. Secondly, uh, then we have a tale of two sons. A tale of two sons. The story of Jesus coming to earth to save a people for himself. It's too big for one gospel to contain. Uh, That's why we have four gospel accounts in the Bible. Uh, And even then, they're only very limited in what they can tell us. And what they have space to to tell us. In fact, the the story of Jesus coming to earth to save a people for himself is too big, even for the whole New Testament to contain. It's so big and glorious that that nothing can contain this story. It it can't even be limited to the Bible. Even the stories that, that people write today... Uh, the, the films that people watch, whether intentional or not, there are echoes of the gospel story everywhere. Uh, because it is, uh, as one of our children's books is called, the greatest story. The story of Jesus coming to earth to save a people for himself is the greatest story. And it's no surprise that we see it both predicted and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. If even unbelievers today can't help but write stories that echo the gospel, how much more could God foreshadow it in the scriptures he wrote to prepare his people for the coming of Jesus? And the story of Joseph foreshadows the story of Jesus in an extraordinary way. And yet this is the very thing we risk missing out on if we try and turn these final chapters of Genesis into life lessons from the story of Joseph. So for the rest of our time tonight, I want to show you the gospel as it's pictured here in this chapter. I, I want to hold these diamonds up to the light So that you can marvel at them. I'm not going to show you anything that isn't already here in Genesis 37. Uh, Just think of me uh, as a diamond miner. Uh, My job isn't to to put new things into the mine. Because nothing I have is of value to add to it. My job is just to reveal things that have been here the whole time. Uh, Some of which you'll have seen before. Some of which uh, perhaps you haven't. And my goal is to leave you amazed in wonder at the God whose plan of salvation is so perfect, uh, so marvellous and so certain that he foreshadowed it in the life of Joseph almost 2,000 years before it came to pass in the life of Jesus. And so I've entitled this second point A Tale of Two Sons because Genesis 37 is actually the story of two beloved sons of their father. The first son is Joseph, the second is Jesus Christ. Just like Joseph, Jesus was the beloved son of his father. Just like Joseph, Jesus willingly agreed with his father to go on a mission. Jacob sent Joseph 50 miles away to Shechem, The father sent his son to be the saviour of the world. Joseph was sent to seek his brothers, as he says himself in verse 16. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came into the world and said in the words of Psalm 40, Behold, I have come to do your will. And Joseph uses the same word here in verse 13. Behold I, or here I am. Just like Joseph, Jesus was hated by his brothers. Jesus came to the Jews, his own flesh and blood, but they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And while we can debate as to whether Joseph had brought some of this hatred on himself, Jesus himself says, they hated me without a cause. There's no doubt uh, that Jesus did not deserve, uh, he hadn't brought this on him in any way. Just like Joseph Jesus Christ brought God's word and just like in Jesus' day those who perceived that Jesus was speaking about them hated it and resisted it. Just like Joseph Jesus was clothed with royalty. The translation robe of many colours is pretty uncertain. Uh, it's, It's At this point, it's so steeped in popular culture that it it would be hard to change. Uh, But the only other place the word occurs in the Bible, it's used to describe the type of robe that the king's daughters wore, Uh, probably a robe of long sleeves. But the point is that the only other time this type of robe is used, it's connected with royalty. Uh, There's something royal about Joseph, uh, and Jesus is king of kings. And then Joseph was stripped of his robe, just as Jesus was stripped of his clothes at the cross with a purple robe, put on him and then stripped of that robe too. Joseph's brothers plot to kill him, just as the Jews plotted to kill Jesus. But unlike with Joseph, there was no one to rescue Jesus, because God's plan for the world involved Joseph living, but Jesus dying god's plan for the world it involved joseph living but jesus dying joseph's brothers saw him coming and decided to kill him they say here comes this dreamer come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits those are very similar to the words that jesus puts into the mouth of the tenants in the parable of the vineyard As they see the owner's son coming and they say, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. Just like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed. Uh, One betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, the other for 30. Joseph was handed over to pagans by his brothers. And so was Jesus. Handed over to the Gentiles by his Jewish brothers. And as we'll go on to see, Joseph's apparent downfall was actually God's plan for the salvation of his brothers and of the world. Just like Jesus. We can't help but see Jesus in this story. Not because we're trying to read him into it. Well, because this is the story of salvation. This is the story of a man going from humiliation to exaltation in order to deliver his people and save the world. My question tonight is Have you seen how you fit into this story? One of the most tragic things about the story in front of us is that God's plan is that in God's plan, Joseph was the one who was going to save his brother's life, but they can't see it. And as he comes towards them, the man God has appointed to rescue them, all they can think about is killing him. And in the same way, when Jesus came into the world, John the Baptist explicitly said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But three years later, having heard his teaching, having seen his miracles, all the people want to say is crucify him, crucify him. The man who had come to save them, and they crucify him. And we can't point the finger at them because we would have done exactly the same. We would have crucified him too. But in God's amazing plan, what Joseph's brothers did to him, And what humanity did to Jesus only served to advance the plan of salvation. And so as we close this evening, let me shift your attention from the son who was sold as a slave to the son who was crucified. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Because he is your only hope of salvation. But what if you have done that, and yet your life tonight it still seems so far from what you'd like it to be? If your situation at the moment even seems pretty desperate, well, take heart from this story. This is an ugly chapter in many ways. There is great sin. There is awful suffering. But in it all, God's plan continues to advance. And have you ever thought about what it was that kept Joseph going in these horrific circumstances? In what happens to him here and in all that will follow? What kept Joseph going? Well, surely it was because he knew how the story was going to end Because God had had told him in those two dreams. What Joseph experienced was horrific. And don't imagine Joseph being calm and serene as his brothers put him in a pit, debated killing him and eventually sold him. Many years later, his brothers will remember his screams. They'll say in chapter 42 verse 21, We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. He was distressed, he was begging us, and we didn't listen. But through all those dark years that he went through, he had God's word to rest on, and so do we. Even though we don't know exactly how the different things in our lives that we're facing just now fit into the story of what God is doing in our lives, we do know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. As the next verse in that great 8th chapter of Romans goes on to remind us. Those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And the end result in the next verse is glorification. We don't know how this week will go. We don't know how this month will go. We don't know how this year will go. But we do know how the story ends. God's plans and purposes are perfect. And we can trust him. Amen. Well in closing tonight we'll sing a great hymn of praise. uh, Psalm 148a. uh, Psalm 148a. We read here in verse 2. All his hosts together praise him sun and moon, all stars of light. Uh, that's why, or at least one of the reasons why the early church fathers thought Joseph's dream was ultimately speaking of Christ because they, they tied in with this psalm. Um, uh, whether they're the, the right or, or not about Joseph, they're certainly right about this psalm. Joseph may have seen the sun, moon and stars pictured as bowing down to him uh, but ultimately they're pictured here bowing uh, before uh, the glory of Jesus Christ the one uh, who was far greater than Joseph. Uh, Joseph, uh, whether he's right or wrong in this chapter he was not sinless. He was a sinner like all of us but Jesus wasn't. He went down to, to far greater depths than even Joseph would uh, and tonight he has ascended uh, to, to, to a greater height than, than the earthly uh, glory that, that Joseph was raised up to. Uh, so the tune is uh, 257, tune 257, uh, Psalm 148a. Uh, let's sing praise.